ocean blue and foaming white Surround the body of my fly As I flew out of sight You were turning in the stars And I know what it means to you And I know what it means to me And I know how it feels to be Burned by the sun, the sun, I love the sun Hello and welcome to episode 1243 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are, how are you? you? How are you? I asked first. Well, I'm well. <laughs> You're well. We yeah. Usually one of us speaks for the other, so we're both doing just fine. Just on yeah. this slog toward death and in this mm-hmm. distraction, we will be joined by the Mariners Senior Director of Marketing, Greg Green, and also Mariners Director of Marketing, Mandy Lincoln, to talk about fan engagement and scoreboards, specifically the make some noise decibel meter that pops up on (laughs) scoreboards in ballparks around the country. Before we get to that segment, we will have some banter. I'm sure yesterday there were three position players who took the mound, two of them in the same game, one of them in the fourth inning. Uh, so mm-hmm. all, all kinds of things that weren't supposed to be happening happened yesterday. I think uh, we had Alex Blandino come out for the Reds. He threw a very jiffable knuckleball that got a swinging strike. Blandino actually struck out yeah. two batters in his appearance. It was a 19-4 loss. Just after loss, we were but... talking yesterday on the email show about how many position players have a good knuckleball or could fake a good knuckleball, Blandino comes out and he got a good one, clearly. Yeah, I, uh, I think it would not be a coincidence if one of our upcoming guests were one Alex Blandino of the Cincinnati <laughs> Reds to talk about this possibility. I don't know. I haven't read about his knuckleball, and I've only seen the one, but it looked very good. He struck out Brandon Geyer. He struck out Roberto Perez in the same inning, so that's pretty good. Uh, he's not the first position player to strike out multiple batters in an inning. J.D. Davis did that last year for the Astros, but also for the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks lost the game 19-2. to In that game, Daniel Descalso came in to pitch in the fourth inning. Alex Avila came in to pitch in the seventh inning. Jeff Mathis played second base in that game for some reason. <laughs> Jeff Mathis also had recently pitched. I saw a funny quote. So uh, we've, we've seen the numbers. We've talked about the numbers where position players pitching, their ERA isn't actually as bad as you'd think for people who are terrible. And uh, I'll just read, read here from a Zach Buchanan article at The Athletic. This is the lead. As Rockies star Nolan Arenado dug into the right side batter's box for his fourth inning plate appearance, he realized he was nervous. His heart was pounding. The opposing pitcher was someone he'd never faced, and he was a former teammate to boot. It was Diamondbacks infielder Daniel Descalso. Quote, I was tripping out, Arenado said. He was smiling at me. <laughs> so I think one of the things to keep in mind when you were looking at these uh, these numbers, I've seen... We've talked before, and I've seen it on Twitter, people asking, who's who's worse, position players pitching or pitchers hitting? But something mm-hmm. to understand is that when pitchers are hitting, they're doing so when the game is presumably still in question. There is reason to be competitive. There is competition. Whereas when position players are on the mound, the game's over, and it's just weird. No one's really comfortable. And I think that barring appearances like Jesus Sucre just the other week, Generally, no one really cares anymore when position players come in, and it's just kind of an uncomfortable experience for everybody. So anyway, mm-hmm. Daniel Descalso faced Nolan Arenado in that game. Descalso allowed two home runs, including one to the opposing pitcher. 
he was not a good game for the Diamondbacks, but the Diamondbacks had a stretch there where they had three consecutive position players pitching. They were the team, I should say, that had three consecutive position player pitching appearances. That was Jeff Mathis, Alex Avila, and Daniel Descalso. One thing I will bring up, because I don't know if you have noticed this, but you probably haven't looked at Daniel Descalso's uh, offensive line yet this season, because why would you? But just in case you were wondering, Daniel Descalso does have a WRC plus of 126 over 270 plate appearances. He's been very good. How about that? Yeah, this was Daniel Descalso's fifth career pitching appearance, I believe, and his previous four had been scoreless. But this one, he was asked to go, what, two and a third, two and two thirds. He was asked to pitch for quite some time, and it was not scoreless. He gave up a few runs. But you're right. I mean, it's just not really even that conversation worthy, even though we are conversing about it currently, when a position player pitches anymore, because it's just become so much more common Even since this podcast started back in 2012, back then it was still a relative rarity for this kind of thing to occur. And now we're just seeing position players pitch all the time. And we've talked about how it probably makes sense from a win expectancy standpoint to do it even more than teams have done it. So I can see why it's happening. I mean, on the one hand, it's strange because there are more relievers on rosters than ever before. And you'd think that there's less need for position players to pitch. But no, there is more need because the relievers don't go very deep when they come in. And they also don't tend to go on consecutive days as much anymore. So there is a benefit to throwing these guys out there just as the sacrificial lambs, mop-up men, inning eaters. And it's funny... I think that we're now, Joe Sheehan had the numbers in his newsletter. I think this was 29 pitching appearances by position players already this year, which is the second highest total in history. I think the highest total was last year with 32. So we're just at the all-star break here. There have already been 29, and the single-season record is 32. So this is among the more visible innovations or direct results of teams' I don't know, getting smarter or operating in ways that maybe lead to wins or help them in certain ways despite appearances. So it happens so much now that it's not really a novelty unless you come in and you look like Matt Davidson and you look like a legitimately good pitcher or you come in and you look like Alex Blandino and you've got a good knuckleball. So interesting in those cases, but otherwise it's almost routine at this point. There were though a couple of fun facts just about those Diamondbacks appearances on Wednesday. As you probably saw, Daniel Descalso pitched in the fourth inning. That was the earliest that any position player had pitched in a game since the Brewers' Sal Bando in August of 1979. That was also in the fourth inning, so that was quite some time ago. And then, very relevant to this podcast, as a number of people noted, the Diamondbacks were the first team to pitch two position players for two-plus innings each in the same game since the Pirates pitched twin brothers Johnny and Eddie O'Brien. Two innings apiece on July 31st, 1956. Johnny O'Brien, we asked him about that, or not about that specifically, but about his pitching career, brief and undistinguished as it was. There have been 207 players this year with 250 or more plate appearances. Daniel Descalso's 126W surplus ranks him right around the top 50. He is in the same neighborhood as Carlos Correa, Javier Baez, Kyle Schwarber, Anthony Rendon, Wilson Contreras. Daniel Descalso is slugging 484. 
That's impressive. I yeah, would not have guessed this it. is definitely one of those things that one would notice. One would think that's really weird, but it is still impossible to sell as an article to be written. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So Jacob Degrom update. Oh, yeah, I want to give course. you one of those. Yeah, <laughs> after his latest gem, which was what eight innings and uh, was it scoreless or was it one run against the Phillies? One of those. He was great. Eight scoreless he- innings. Yeah, he's been fantastic. His ERA is down to like almost Bob Gibsonian 1968 levels. He's at 168 now, and his old school win loss record still at five and four. His wins above replacement now up to six, 6.0. That's just his pitching war. I think he has some hitting war too. So he has at least a one win above replacement cushion here, probably more. So. If he goes out his next time and actually gets an old-fashioned W, he probably still won't pull even with his war total. So he's got a bit of a buffer here. He'll have to, I guess, win a couple games without being brilliant again to actually pull ahead here. I mean, it's getting to the point where it's kind of conceivable that he could do this over a full season if he is not traded. So right now, Jacob deGrom is the major league leader in starts where he goes at least six innings and allows no more than one run. Of course, he just went eight scoreless innings the other day, so that's even better. But anyway, starts with at least six innings, no more than one run. Jacob deGrom, oh, and I should say also, no pitcher win. That's the other part of this. So Jacob deGrom has seven of those starts already this season. That's first place. Justin Verlander has five. So Jacob deGrom's ERA over those starts is 0.71. That's very good. He's the major league leader in this. This is the category where we've talked about Felix Hernandez and, and Matt Cain before, and is a refresher of just trying to look at the all-time numbers. The all-time record for the number of starts, these starts in a season, is eight. It's a 10-way tie. Jacob deGrom <laughs> is one away, and we have not yet reached the all-star break. So the, wow. uh, the record... It's held by 2014 Jeff Samarja, 2015 Shelby Miller, 2014 Felix Hernandez, 2015 Matt Harvey, 2015 Zach Reiki. That's a lot of recent pitchers. 2016 Madison Bumgarner, 1916 Wilbur Cooper, 1963 Roger Craig, 2000 Kevin Brown, 1996 Pedro Astacio. All those pitchers had at least eight starts, no win, where they went six innings or more, one run or less. Jacob Begram, one away. Unbelievable. Yeah. Do we need to talk about Kyle Schwarber? Bunting for hits with two strikes. Is that a that seems relevant to this podcast? It's so relevant. That's the article I'm in the middle of working on. Ah. What uh <laughs> what have you heard? <laughs> Maybe you can help. <laughs> well, I have definitely not researched it. All I know is that it happened and it was not the first time that it happened. Mm-hmm. So that's unusual. What have you found? Because you've actually looked into it, presumably. Has this gone more viral than I realized? I was only tipped off by Grant Brisby on Wednesday that it happened. And, uh, no, it was big in our Facebook group, but I don't think that <laughs> represents the uh, cross-section of baseball fans as a whole. So, okay, let me uh, let me just uh, square this way. So this season, it's hard to look at. The, it's What matters is not just bunts with two strikes, right, but also bunt attempts. So you need to mm-hmm. uh, add in missed bunts and fouled bunts. So if I can get all my numbers here in order, Kyle, uh, there have been this season 14 attempted bunts with... Two strikes and no runners on base. Oftentimes, you'll see pitchers attempt two strike bunts with their when their runners on because pitchers are terrible. That's something we've talked about all the time. So, mm-hmm. fourteen bunt attempts this season by anyone with two strikes and the bases empty. Six of those bunt attempts have failed to put the ball in play. So, those are six strikeouts. There have been eight in play bunts, 
with two strikes, no runners on. Four of those have resulted in hits. Two of those have been by Kyle Schwarber, one by Enter Inciarte, and one by Yolmer Sanchez. Over the pitch tracking era, so since 2008, there have been a total of just 26 bunt hits with two strikes, nobody on base. The season there have been four. Uh, the high is five for 2014 and 2011. Anyway, there's a two-way tie for first place. Four such bunt hits. D. Gordon, not surprising. Carlos Pena, one of the yeah. original bunt against the shifters. Uh, yes. Carlos Gomez has three, and Schwarber is already tied for third place, tied with Brett Gardner with two. And Kyle Schwarber has those two bunts in just over two weeks of action. So he did it to Ross Stripling, and he did it against Will Smith. So I uh, I like it. I was looking up the numbers Will Smith against lefties for his career as a reliever, 41% strikeouts and a 270 mm. weighted on base average against Kyle Schwarber against lefties for his career, 37% strikeouts, a 276 Woba. And of course, when Schwarber bunted, he was in a two strike count, which you, you, Will Smith against Kyle Schwarber with two strikes, you might as well try the bunt. And <laughs> one more thing I will tell you because Jerry Krasnick just had an interesting article come out on Wednesday, maybe Tuesday, I think Wednesday. Yeah but it was probably Tuesday, about left-handed hitters uh, bunting or, or how they deal with facing the shift. And one of the things that uh, the players brought up, it was what, Matt Carpenter, Kyle Seeger, and Daniel Murphy, I think is who mm -hmm. we talked to. And one of the things they said was that it's not as easy as bunting against the shift because what defenses will do now is they will have the third baseman over there until there are two strikes when they don't anticipate the bunt. So I can tell you, thanks to Baseball Savant and StatCast data, exactly what happened with Schwarber. When the at-bat began, the third baseman was 101 feet away. When Schwarber swung and missed to the first pitch, the third baseman moved to 108 feet away. This is pretty normal positioning, I would, I would guess. After Schwarber swung and missed at strike two, the third baseman moved to 149 feet away, which is basically where he remained. So the third baseman moved away by another 45 or 50 feet after Schwarber got to a two-strike count. So that was the only real bunting opportunity that Kyle Schwarber had, and he seized it because I think, let's face it, Kyle Schwarber against Will Smith in a two-strike count, you're not going to get a hit very likely via any other method. So the, <laughs> the risk here was just the embarrassment of going down on strikes with a bunt attempt instead of going down on strikes with a swing. I watched Schwarber attempt three swings against Smith in the at-bat. They were all bad. He looked very bad because Will Smith is very good. So I like it. I applaud the, uh, the opportunity that he, uh, that he seized. And now you don't have to read the post that I will put up. <laughs> I will link to it anyway, just uh, out of obligation, just in case, get you some clicks. So we haven't gotten a full response yet on the query that we put out about the Rays proposed ballpark design and the glass exterior and whether it will burn everyone inside because <laughs> of the sun. <laughs> I have heard from a few people, though, and I'm sure there will be more responses, but I did want to mention this because we were sent this by a listener named Sitar, who says, just wanted to alert you to this possibly similar issue. The Vegas sun reflecting off the Vidara Hotel creates a death ray at the pool that supposedly increases temperatures by at least 20 degrees. He sent me a link to an article, Business Insider, 2016. Now it says, when the Vidara was built in 2008, the staff installed a thin film on the 3,000 glass panes facing the pool to lessen the sunlight's intensity, but it wasn't enough to alleviate the problem. And so there are, evidently the hotel took further steps. They installed umbrellas to protect the guests from the death ray. It's a 57-story building that uh, basically looks like a, a magnifying glass. It's just like a, a 
concave kind of thing and it focuses the sun and so it seems as if this problem is not completely corrected there were yelp reviews <laughs> one in 2016 a guest said it's a nice hotel but the death ray rumors are true <laughs> He also posted two photos of burns on his thighs, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a spokesperson responded, plenty of shaded areas are available to ensure that our guests remain comfortable and get the amount of sun they prefer. <laughs> so not the amount of sun that leaves visible burns on your thighs, presumably. And it goes on. The first complaint was from a guest who had burns on his head. And the building's rays also melted a plastic bag that was sitting next to him at the time. Now, this is my favorite part. It says, a skyscraper in London by the same architect, Raphael Vignoli, shares the same design flaw. Called the walkie-talkie and dubbed the fry-scraper, it has <laughs> melted cars, fried bike seats, and scorched pedestrians, the Telegraph reported in 2015. In a 2013 interview with The Guardian, Vignoli said he anticipated the death rays from both buildings. <laughs> Quote, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> He said of London Skyscraper, but there was a lack of tools or software that could be used to analyze the problem accurately. But when it was spotted on a second design iteration, we judged the temperature was going to be about 36 degrees Celsius, but it turned out to be more like 72 degrees Celsius. They are calling it the death ray because if you go there, you might die. It is phenomenal, this thing. <laughs> he sounds almost proud. Yeah, you can't blame him for not taking accountability. Yeah, his buildings these super weapons are fully operational i don't know whether he has pursued this design in, in further buildings but doesn't really sound all that uh, upset about it anyway so that is uh, one cautionary tale i suppose so i guess they could just rebrand right as the tampa bay death rays and then it's just part of yes. their model Yes, exactly. So we did hear from uh, a couple people who have downplayed the risk. So Nick says uh, he emailed us quickly. He has a, an architecture job, and he said that he thinks that what you said is basically right, that glass comes with a variety of coatings that will let only certain kinds of light in. In theory, the glass at the stadium should be able to deflect much of the heat and not focus the light into a horrifying death ray, even if that would be a fun play on the team name, just as you said. So he is going to follow up with further information also in the Facebook group, a listener named Anthony, who is in engineering school. He says he took a quick poll of both architects and civil engineers on the stadium question. The architect said it's possible to have multi-paned glass or treated glass panes that would bounce the sun's rays or filter them out, but it would be incredibly expensive. The civil engineers said they could not use glass at all, but rather a PTFE polytetrafluoroethylene membrane for the roof. Apparently it wouldn't be totally transparent, but it's a lot lighter than glass and wouldn't have the same greenhouse effect of roasting people inside. <laughs> that civil engineer evidently worked on SunTrust Park, so he knows something about baseball stadiums. Anyway, that's where we stand right now. I'm sure we will hear from other listeners, but do not be like Raphael Vignoli, Tampa Bay Rays. You do not want to create a fry scraper or a death ray. 
72 degrees Celsius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not enough to boil your blood, but it's close enough for discomfort, or I guess as discussed, death and melting of cars. Yes, exactly. My goodness. Uh, <laughs> How do you, you said, okay, I I could anticipate the issue, but we couldn't analyze it properly because of the tools available. <laughs> right. So I maybe don't create the problem. <laughs> uh, How big I is fail. the ray? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but... Uh... Yeah, this is a problem. I'm not convinced that it's not a problem. So people convince me that this is not a problem. I'm sure that uh, we should have asked Michael McClellan, our former guest who is now working for the Rays by now, presumably, and studies physics and atmospheric science. Maybe he is consulted on this. I'll email him. Anyway, that's what I know. I'm sure we'll know more and we will report further. So only other thing I think I wanted to mention is this Cardinals controversy that is going on. We basically ignored the first Cardinals controversy, which is that Mike Matheny is not talking to Dexter Fowler and John Mazalak kind of threw Fowler under the bus publicly, which not the greatest move regardless of what's going on behind the scenes. Anyway, the new thing comes from a Mark Saxon athletic article, and it's about Jordan Hicks and Bud Norris, who is the Cardinals closer. So the Cardinals closer and setup man, evidently a pretty fraught relationship. So the title of this article says veteran Bud Norris is leading the young cards bullpen with a divisive old school approach. And the quotes in this article are certainly divisive, I suppose you could say. So Saxon says that the 33-year-old Norris has been mercilessly riding 21-year-old rookie Jordan Hicks since spring training, reminding him to be at meetings on time and publicly calling him out when he is lagging in any of the details a visitor might not notice but other players do. Hicks was asked whether it would be beneficial for him in his future. He said, I have no idea, no comment, which doesn't sound as if he is enjoying this merciless writing. It's not entirely clear what this treatment consists of. He says badgering. He says the harshest way possible of teaching young players. It's sort of unspecific, but it doesn't sound pleasant. And then you have quotes from Matheny sounding like a very old school kind of guy in this article saying, I think the game has progressively gotten a little softer. Man, it had some teeth not that long ago. So Bud Norris is a guy who has said some things that were kind of questionable in the past. I think most notably when a few years ago he had some vaguely Trumpian comments about ballplayer relations and this is America's game and it's America's pastime and if you come to this country and make our American dollars you need to respect the game and stop your antics and then when he was with the Astros he was seemingly trying to get away from the Astros constantly which I can't blame him for they were terrible at the time but he also seemed to object to shifts and some of the new age things the Astros were doing which have since proven to be pretty successful Anyway, it just sounds like your basic hazing that goes on in sports and hopefully goes on a lot less than it used to, which it sounds like Mike Matheny is lamenting. Anyway, I don't know what's going on with the Cardinals these days, but it doesn't seem as if clubhouse-wise they are a model organization right now. No, Bud Norris is an interesting pitcher. I like like him as a free agent. He's been very good since he's 
joined the Cardinals, been very good for taking over for Greg Holland. He was bad, but yeah, he kind of seems like he's an asshole. I don't think that there's any <laughs> real question. I did while you were talking, I did a Google search for Bud Norris asshole, and there were a lot of results. It's been a, <laughs> a common point of conversation for for this reason and so many others. So Bud Norris, yeah. kind of a dick. But probably not something the Cardinals were surprised by when they signed him. Mm-hmm. This is he's a he's a thirty something year he's thirty something right he's got to be by yeah, now thirty three God's sake yep thirty three yeah. and he, he looks like he's older than that and mm-hmm. uh, I think his reputation preceded him so the Cardinals multiple reasons why he was probably so available as a free agent but uh, you know as long as you're in the Cardinals dugout and you're Bud Norris and you're not Mike Matheny you know you're not problem number one so I guess there's comfort in that. Yeah. The article says Matheny sees Norris's actions as an effort to carry on the dying tradition of teaching younger players in the harshest possible ways. That doesn't sound like a good tradition. That sounds like a tradition that should be dying. He says, uh, I guess Saxon asked him if Hicks would one day appreciate this. And Matheny says, probably not, with a chuckle. But Bud's going to continue to do what he thinks is right as a veteran. So you respect that. Do you? Is this, <laughs> is this a defensive bud? I can't tell what the perspective is here. Yeah, it's really hard to tell. I, I can't tell whether the article is defending it or just kind of presenting it and letting you draw your own conclusion. Either way, it doesn't come off as a positive thing. And I mean, you don't have to respect what a veteran is doing if you don't think it's the right thing to do. That's kind of always been one of the big criticisms of Matheny, aside from his in-game moves, is just that he has a lot of deference to veterans and doesn't trust young players. And here, evidently, he's just kind of okay with whatever the veteran wants to do. And not saying that veterans don't have something to teach rookies. Certainly they do. And if Hicks is late for team meetings or, you know, is doing something else that would, I guess, deserve a, a word from a veteran, fine. That's that's great. That's what veterans are there for. There's always going to be some kind of hierarchy inside a clubhouse. But if it gets to the point where you are mercilessly riding someone, I don't know, maybe with certain personalities that would help the person, but with others, it would have the opposite effect. We, we've mentioned before that we seldom talk about managers, and if there is one manager who is discussed at nauseum on the internet it is mike matheny i don't watch enough of the cardinals to really notice or care about the in-game maneuvers that he makes it's just something that is does not appeal to me as an analyst or writer but this is the kind of thing where uh i think this would be a window into how mike matheny does create a let's say under functional clubhouse environment this behavior is stupid Mm -hmm. yeah i wonder who's more popular right now mike matheny with dexter fowler and jordan hicks or A.J. Hinch with Ken Giles, who uh, (laughs) is now a minor leaguer after he cursed out A.J. Hinch when he was removed from a game the other day. That one seems like it's probably more Giles' problem than uh, A.J. Hinch's, just judging from afar. But uh, not analogous situations, but both situations where a player is not happy with a manager. It happens. All right. Before we bring in our guests, I'm going to leave you with this image and just get your thoughts. So two listeners in our Facebook group independently have posted this image. Now, it's of a ad campaign that is being run by fatherhood.gov, so some government initiative to promote fatherhood and father-son relations or father-child relations. Sounds great. Anyway, both of these listeners, Kevin and Taylor, they posted pictures of images that are plastered on looks like bus benches or just benches out in public, not the same bench, perhaps not the same city. So the message is 
take time to be a dad today. Then it says fatherhood.gov. Great. All fine so far. Here's the weird thing. The dad and the son, I guess, the child of unspecified sex here, it's a baseball ad because the father has a baseball bat and the child has a baseball. I hesitate to say holding a baseball bat or holding a baseball because what it is is they are both blobs of mucus for some reason. Are you seeing this? Have you opened this? They look like the Mucinex mascot and... The father has a bat stuck inside of him. It's just protruding from him because he is just a green gelatinous mass. And the child has a baseball just inside him, just completely consumed by the blob because he is also a blob. They're holding hands. Not clear to me what they're going to do with this bat and ball because it doesn't look like they have any other appendages. Why are they blobs of mucus that's what i can't figure out there is a comment here that says the blobs are from the movie transylvania 3 it's some flavor of weird cross promotion that's from brian bartle bartel bartle you can let us know but is that true i have not fact checked this comment nor does that in any sense explain a partnership (laughs) between fatherhood.gov baseball Uh and transylvania 3 what is transylvania 3 what is transylvania 1 (laughs) I can't say I caught Transylvania 1 and 2. So I just Googled, there does appear to be a green blob who is in the Transylvania series. So uh, I guess that's what it is. I don't know that the market awareness of Transylvania is is that high, maybe among children. But uh, this is kind of weird that you would, I mean, it's a great message, I guess, to have fathers spend time with their kids. But It's odd that they're both blobs and that they have baseball equipment inside them. Well, what's unsaid here in this campaign, so fatherhood.gov, it's not for like some sort of stand-in father role. This is for like actually being a dad. Is that what it is? Promoting positive dad behavior. So the thing about the, the slogan, take time to be a dad today, is it's like, look, I know you don't usually want to be a dad. You don't usually want to do your things. But, you know, at least today, be accountable <laughs> right. to your kid. Yeah. Just like hang around, maybe have a catch. And then you can go back to drinking, hanging out in your garage, ignoring <laughs> right. your child being a terrible role model. So it's a, it's a weird message with weird characters that it's not even necessarily clear how they would procreate or if they do it asexually. <laughs> no. yeah. It seems like with the bat just inside. like amoeba who just uh, have some sort of cellular division going on here. I don't know. But they are transparent and sticky. So <laughs> it's very strange. It's a, it's a strange choice of spokespeople or spokesblobs. I don't like this not even a little bit. <laughs> Uh, I will link to that if anyone wants to shed some light on this for us. I, uh, yeah, I assume it's a Transylvania tie-in for whatever that's worth, but I don't know. Maybe some actual human-looking people <laughs> would be better representatives for fatherhood. Eh, I don't know. Maybe it's a, a very positive father character in Transylvania 3. We'll <laughs> shed some light on this, but don't shed a Raphael Vignoli degree of light <laughs> on this. We wouldn't appreciate yeah. it. Exactly. All right. We will take a quick break and we will be back with multiple members of the Mariners front office to talk about how they engage their fans. And stay tuned after the interview because I'll have a bunch of updates for you as well. You wouldn't look at me. You threw the book at me. 
make some noise fan prompt that you see in uh, in every ballpark in America. We had some questions about it. We figured we'd go straight to the source, not just talking about that, but that and also fan engagement as a, a broader principle. And so we're joined right now by Mariners Senior Director of Marketing, Greg Green, and also Mariners Director of Marketing, Mandy Lincoln. I understand that there's a celebrity microphone sighting on this podcast. They're using the microphones that Jerry DePoto and Colin O'Keefe used to record the wheelhouse. But, ooh. I will. Uh, I will ask you. Don't about tell your them. Own. <laughs> they won't hear that, will they? Uh, you, uh, you, I don't know what. Uh, Colin, I don't know what Jerry listens to during the days. Colin doesn't miss anything. If it's on the internet, he'll hear it or see it. <laughs> um, I understand. I'm not supposed to bring up the Mariners' run differential around him. But anyway, I'll ask you both about your uh, your bios in a minute. But first, so that we can get to the heart of the mystery, the make some noise fan prompt on scoreboards and the uh, the decibel meter. If you had to do a big explainer, a Mythbusters, I'm sure Safeco Field has one of these. What is the story with the Make Some Noise fan prompt and the decibel meter? When do you use it and what the decibel meter is actually doing? So uh, the decibel meter and the Make Some Noise prompts, you know, we actually use these for, for strategic purposes. We can't affect the outcome of the game, but we can help push fans to try to make noise at the right times to help our team to kind of as rallies start to happen and things start to happen in the game, um, you you start to layer them in more. You know, you get a runner on first and second in the second inning, and you might put one on when Nelson Cruz comes up. That same situation on the eighth inning, and you're you may be laying into those like between every pitch to really you know get the crowd going. And then there's different level of make noise. We you know we know which ones work better than others, and definitely the decibel meter one works really well fans you know want, want to push that over the top so you save that for for a really big situation or to rattle the opposing pitcher if he's gone 2-0 or 3-1 on nelson is kind of struggling to find the plate you can uh mix in the decibel and then the crowd really gets going and you know we're we're trying to trying to affect the game the best we can with the with those tools that we have is that meter measuring anything real? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It is measuring the enthusiasm at Safeco Field. <laughs> okay, so uh, before before follow up question on that, I guess uh, Greg first, and then Mandy second. Can you just explain, I guess, quickly how long you've been working for the Mariners and uh, what your fifty words or less, I guess, what your job responsibilities are right now. Mandy should really go first. I, I All right. Think, Mandy, you lead off. I'm the rookie on the group. Uh, I'm a rookie. You've been here 10 years. <laughs> yeah, 11. This is season 11. Right now, uh, came up again 11 years here. Currently, uh, assist Greg with uh, the department's advertising efforts. And then also have uh, my hands in kind of overseeing the direction of our game presentation. So that experience that the fans do have in the ballpark, whether that is through graphically, through the video board or through audio or through content. Uh, so kind of a hybrid role there, again, with game presentation and advertising. I got uh, started here in 1995. And uh, as my first gig was back up DJ at the Kingdom, 
I was I was not the DJ. I was the backup to the DJ. So that was that was my foot in the door. I'm in my 24th season now with the team. I started full time in uh, 1998, and I get a chance to work on advertising, promotional giveaways. Uh, I get the honor of working with Colin O'Keefe and uh, Nathan Rochberg and our amazing social media team, and a host of other things, game entertainment with Mandy, and we we have a great time over here. So when you uh going back to the the make some noise meter when you <laughs> when, when like you a are pit bull on it not gonna let it go <laughs> I mean this is this is why we're having this conversation You're asking right now. them to sure. spill industry secrets here <laughs> we've already gotten an, an answer as a non answer here but what is there is is there like an element of conditioning that you want the fans to pick up on? Because of course you're you're picking strategic times to deploy it and get that fan enthusiasm. You know, carrying the meter over the uh, the threshold that always seems to take a consistent fifteen to twenty seconds, which is awfully coincidental. <laughs> but are you, is there you really studied this a lot? <laughs> you you go to a baseball game, you see that pretty often, and you start to wonder. Do you keep a chart, or is there anything that they never seem an Excel to spreadsheet fail that comes out? to make sufficient noise? They always. <laughs> just managed to get over that limit. No matter what the crowd size, it's, un- it's uncanny. So you would... Th- is they maybe there- recalibrated I- each night depending on the crowd size. You don't know right. these things. It's park right. adjusted. It's, it's a decibel relative to the attendance <laughs> in the ballpark. So yep. is it, I guess, from your perspective, maybe frustrating isn't the right word, but you're using it at times where you want the fans to make noise. And now in certain ballparks, you think maybe... Long-time fans, old-time baseball fans would know to make noise. I know this is a common complaint about baseball stadiums in general, but is it is it weird at all that you have to prompt fans in the first place to make noise at times when it seems like they should be making noise? I don't think it's weird. I think, you know, those prompts are an enhancement. I think fans do make noise, and a lot of times if, if they are, you know, making noise or starting chants in the ballpark, we'll get out of the way and, and not overlay, you know, you know those those prompts on the on the screen but you know the fans know when to do it and we're really just we're just kind of nudging it along a little more and trying to get a, a little bit more out of it to like i said you know help our team on the field so how do you balance wanting to contribute something to the fan experience and not wanting to be intrusive or get in the way of people paying attention to the game or talking to the people sitting next to them because you do hear the complaint from people that oh it's so loud at ballparks these days and they're blasting music at me and these probably tend not to be the younger people in attendance but I don't know what the comparison is between the decibel level in ballparks today and ballparks decades ago but there's a perception at least that it's louder than it used to be don't know whether that's true but do you consider just how big a presence you want to be in the typical fan's experience? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely strategic uh, when we kind of lay out our, our plan for a game. But at the same time, you know, like Greg said earlier, we can't control the play on the field. So we're kind of reacting to, to what happens and uh, looking for those moments again to um, try to influence the crowd. And again, if it's just get them up and going and then hopefully, you know, they take over from there. I think uh, we've seen a good example of that in the King's Court that we have out there in left field. I mean, beginning, they're chanting, doing their KKKKK chants after every two-strike opportunity there with Felix. So again, try to nudge them, but then again, get out of the way to to let them take it from there. And, and you know, to say that it's it's a more recent phenomenon, I, I started in 95, and I, I still haven't been in a baseball game setting louder than you know the kingdom was that year mm-hmm. i mean 
that that was as loud as a as a baseball game could be and you know we we had opportunities uh, in, in that season to to enhance moments and make them you know uh better the uh, the one that comes to mind is when Randy came in in game 5 of the epic game against the Yankees you know the crowd was going nuts but he came into you know welcome to the jungle by guns and roses and just you know you can hear it in the background and it still like makes you know the hairs of my arms stand up you know thinking about that moment and like you know the whole you know 58,000 people or whatever in the kingdom just losing their minds you know seeing the big unit come in at that situation so i i think you know music and video and different things within the ballpark have have the opportunity to be a little bit of an icing on the cake it's funny. We just had the chance to talk to Randy Johnson the other week, and he's a big fan of Get Kingsford out. Grills. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I don't know if that you ever knew that when uh, from his time in Seattle, but that's a that's a characteristic he has. We we never talked barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> never came up in conversation. That's all he I seems think to want to talk he was about these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Mandy, you mentioned the uh, the Kings Court, which is I think I don't know if it's the most successful Mariners promotion, but it's at least the most unique. Most unique. I know that'll piss some people off. It is unique. It was unique. Other teams have tried to copy it, but the King's Court, great concept, great execution. And now I, I don't obviously want, I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school here when I say that Felix Hernandez is, he's come down a little bit. He's not what he was at his peak. And so is, I know that this past spring, the King's Court was no longer supposed to hold up K cards. I think it's, what is it now? Let's go Felix for, for reasons that we don't need to get into, but the King's Court, Felix Hernandez still very popular and with the the Maple Grove is now a thing that's starting to take over for James Paxton. But as far as the King's Court is concerned, is there any relationship at this point between the existence of the King's Court and Felix Hernandez's success at all? Or has it become sort of its own, I, I guess, just its own group, its own entity of people who just want to show up in the corner, wear a yellow t-shirt and root for the Mariners, almost regardless of, of how it's going on the mound? I mean, Felix is, is still the king in the, in the fans' eyes. Um, and so, you know, every start that he makes is still has this kind of magic dust on it. You think you're going to, you know, maybe be able to, to see something special every time he pitches. So it's still quite the experience for fans to come out. We just had 2,500 strong out uh, a couple weekends ago and one of his most recent starts. So, you know, it, it's still, it's still a thing here at Safeco Field every time that, uh, that he takes the mound. Still pretty special. I, I personally, his walk-in that he has every time he makes a start here at Safeco Field, uh, you know, we hit the music, we hit the boards, and it's uh, that's one of the moments that has given me the most goosebumps over the years, and still, you know, to this day, uh, does. And you know, not not every fan in Seattle's had an opportunity to experience. It's one of those kind of sports bucket lists is to kind of sit in a, uh, in a in a King's Court for at least one game. I, I may add to it, you know, sitting with the Maple Grove, you know, kind of participating in a you know in a a, a crowd. The crowd section uh, focused on one guy. It's it's pretty special. I know the Rangers had had launched a, a U Darvish fan section. The Rays had a fan section for David Price. I'm sure this has gone around. How does it feel when you see other ballparks sort of? I don't want to say steal, but you know, basically steal a concept that clearly was very successful. You know, it's it it's great, and we baseball teams we we compete you know like hell on the field against each other. And, uh, you know, if there was any secret formula for, for picking, you know, an outfield or an outfield defense, uh, there's no way in heck we would share that with the Rangers. But off the field, there's a lot of collaborative effort to help each other out 
from a business perspective. So we've been more than happy to to work with other organizations and share with them our our learnings on on uh, the King's Court and you know. Likewise, we, we, we get other ideas from, from teams as well. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I assume that you do that sort of opposition research because it's not really direct competition in the way that teams are competing on the field. It's not as if someone's going to say, I'm not happy with the Safeco fan experience, so I'm going to go to a game in Arlington tonight. You can't really yeah. <laughs> choose. You're kind of stuck with the, the local ballpark that you're given. So it makes sense, I suppose, for everyone to kind of pool ideas like that. And I mean, do you have kind of a, a network of, I don't know, scoreboard people and fan experience people who share, well, this is what's working for us this season? Or do you have people who are actually going to games and reporting back on what they see? We actually have next week, uh, there's a big conference called just that. It's called IDEA. Huh. Greg, do you know what it stands? I'm not <laughs> Information me. Display Entertainment there Association. We go. So we have uh, several members of our uh, game presentation and productions department. Um, people that are writing scripts to graphics to videos, uh, they're all gathering with their counterparts, not only from baseball, but from other leagues, the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, all getting together um, to kind of look at each other's work, kind of tips from their experiences. And again, just sharing best practices and, you know, take away what you can and try to apply it to your show or, you know, make it unique to your show. So definitely, you know, opportunities to collaborate. Uh, we just had a member of our department get back from watching or doing a ballpark visit down in Atlanta yesterday. So definitely conversations. Yeah, we have teams that come up and visit us. Interestingly enough, on the uh, idea conference that's taking place, I believe there's an entire symposium on the make noise prompt that they'll spend like two and a half hours on. <laughs> you guys might want to find your way into that. Decibel yes. meters. Yes. Fans Share thirst some of your for research. realism. <laughs> so... Uh, as sort of a broad question, I can already anticipate the first part of your answer will be, it's more fun to go to the ballpark, but one thing you might have <laughs> noticed about the Mariners this year is that they are good. One thing you might have noticed about Mariners teams you've worked for in the past is that they were not. So you have this team in 2018 that is in a playoff position for the first time in, in quite a while. And so aside from the obvious first level, I guess, cliche answer, how is your job different? How... How does the day-to-day change when you have a team that is more able to sell itself? You know, in, in sports, you know, we, we we market a strange product in terms that our our product changes yearly, it changes daily, it changes inning by inning based on what happens. So, it, you know, right now our, our product's great and everybody's excited about it. And, you know, from the things that we control, can control outside the white lines and the competition, our goal is always to be consistent. You know, we want to put on a consistently good show at Safeco Field for our fans, you know, whether we're winning nine nothing or, you know, even in our our 116 year, we we lost games as well at home and, and blew leads and things like that happen. But we need to be put on a consistently good show, you know, food needs to be good at the ballpark, you know, your customer service experience needs to be good. We need to be consistently good win or lose. So uh, as fans, Mandy and I are both fans. We grew up in the area. We grew up loving this team. We're obviously having a great time and, and loving it. And we, you know, we, we live and die with it every day and, and uh, love this season. But, you know, we, we, we look at some of the times we've, we've been down as, as opportunities to try things. Uh, you know, 
It, the, the King's Court was born out of uh, that. We had that those tickets available and those sections available, and we, we were we were looking for a way to you know highlight Felix's start at the ballpark and make that a special experience. So you know there's opportunities in all the standards, but for us really it's about consistency and, and putting on a, a first class show and giving fans a first class experience at Safeco Field. Are there any experiments that come to mind over your fairly long ten years <laughs> that uh, <laughs> did not? perhaps pen out quite as well as the king's court anything that you tried and it backfired and you said never again yeah i mean totally (laughs) we uh you know when when we had uh off years we uh we would roll up our sleeves and try anything (laughs) and uh the one that always comes to mind is um we were trying some new entertainment things at the ballpark and it was a race uh, with fans. It's actually funny because there was this like viral video just recently of a lemon rolling down a hill. But <laughs> I don't know. Did you guys see that? No. Yep. Last yep. night. <laughs> but our, our thing is we put somebody like two fans at the top of each aisle and like let them drop a ball. And it was like a competition to like see which ball went down the stairs fastest. And it was dumb and ridiculous. But... We did it because, you know, we were we were having a rough season and it was September and we were willing to try things. And yeah, it's there's a, been a there's been a lot of moments like that that they're like, Okay, well that didn't work. <laughs> we'll move on. <laughs> Late to the game, but a free suggestion could have been what can Carlos Peguero lift? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you mentioned the excitement of certain songs playing when certain people come in. I don't know how directly this is within your purview, but are you involved directly in getting those picks from players about what they want their songs to be, their walk-up songs, their entrance songs? How do players communicate that? How often do they refresh their selections? Yeah, there's a secret app that every player in Major League Baseball has. That they just send songs to know. They're, uh, they, uh, you know, we, we'll work with them, uh, you know, before spring training or during spring training, talk to them about, you know, what they'd like to hear. There's guys that will uh, say, yeah, go ahead and pick whatever you want. That's more rare now. And then uh, a lot of guys will, you know, pick a song, stick with it for the year. And then there's guys like D. Gordon that are <laughs> changing it almost nightly and, you know, we'll we'll text up new requests based on what they're hearing, but it's it's changed during my tenure here. I think just based on the access that uh, everybody has to music now. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started, you used to have to go down to the Tower Records and, and buy a disc and mm. you know listen to it and you know rip off a, a track and 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 load it in. And today, you can pull up any song ever created from your phone so you know just like all of us these players have their own personal collections of music music that gets them going so you know these days we went from maybe you know uh, back in the early 90s a few guys picking their music to you know almost every guy in major league baseball even when they get the first call up has music that they're ready to go with to the plate Mm -hmm. And will you just send someone down to the clubhouse if there's a new call up and say, hey, welcome to the team. What's your song? <laughs> I try like if they're brand new, I try to pick something to start and uh-huh. then let the, the new guy focus on baseball to start. And then if he has something, he can he can send it up the, the next couple of days. They usually will tell, you know, if we're not down in the clubhouse before the game, they'll tell a, a clubhouse guy or a PR staff member, hey, can you ask them to play X for me when I come up? And is there ever a rejected selection? <laughs> Are you sure you want that song to play? Is that wholesome enough for a ballpark experience? Does that happen often? Yeah, that, that <laughs> happened to me early on in my career with, uh, 
a, a future Hall of Famer. Ooh. Uh, where I was a young pup here in the 20, you know, I was in my early 20s when I started here. And um, uh, Junior sent up a track and, you know, I didn't have the editing equipment that, that we do now where we can, mm. you know, mix out, you know, certain words or yes. pick up different parts of songs. So he sent up a track and I, I wasn't communicating with, I was just a backup DJ. So I wasn't communicating with the clubhouse at the time. So I just sent it back down. I said, I can't, we, we can't play this. And they sent it back up and I sent it back down. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy that was in the middle of all this just got fed up one day and saw me like somewhere near the field. And he's like, come with me. I'm like, I don't know. You know, I'm, I usually don't go anywhere near the field. So I walk out there and he goes, he takes me into the dugout and sits me down no. uh, next to Junior. And Junior like pats the bench like, come here, son. I hear you understand. I understand you're the one not playing my music. Grab a seat in my office. So I sit down. Uh, and like Mandy, I grew up a huge Griffey fan. So I'm like sweating bullets. And uh, I, he says to me, he said, I, I understand uh, you're not playing my song. I said, yeah, well, it's got some questionable lyrics in it, Junior. And <laughs> Do you recall you know, what, what song this was? I, I have no idea. No, so okay. I, I have no idea. So I said, I mean, like, if, if I play the song, I'm, I'm worried I'm going to get fired. And in true Junior fashion, he like pauses and he goes, yeah, don't worry. I'll get you another job. <laughs> so I, I think I found a different point in the song to play than where he wanted it. We, we, we reached a compromise. Uh-huh. I was always surprised that for a time there, Ichiro was allowed to walk up to Rihanna's S&M, but I wasn't offended. I guess that, that's, was... that stands for Seattle Mariners. Isn't that, isn't that what it? Yep. If, if Am that's I wrong? What I told you, then that's super. <laughs> So, yeah. uh, so Mandy, I understand you have your hand in a lot of the uh, the video board uh, content creation, and and among the things that I am told you're responsible is the uh, the D Gordon feature quote flashy or trashy. So this is a two part question, but for one, can you explain to the audience what the D Gordon feature flashy or trashy is? Flashy or trashy? We ask uh, D. His nickname is Flash, so we just ask him. You know, we give him a pop culture topic and. Have him weigh in if he thinks it's flashy or trashy. For example, you know, we asked him Justin Timberlake's Super Bowl outfit. You know, I don't know how well it was received. So we asked him to weigh in. Spoiler alert, he said trashy to that and and encouraged JT to fire his stylist. Um, We'll have everything from, you know, kale to goat yoga to whatever kind of is the, is the latest pop culture trend. So he, he's given us some, some pretty fun answers. Uh, we were able to uh, meet with him when he first came up here during January. He came up for an event and we got a sneak peek at what his personality was like. And then before we went down to spring training, which is where we normally film most of our, our features, we kind of knew, hey, we've got, we've hit a gold mine and this guy's got some stuff to say and it's entertaining and it's fun. So how can we capitalize on, on showcasing that to our fans? I don't know what goat yoga is, but whatever you tell me about the truth is going to be less interesting than what I've imagined. So we're going to leave it there. So Sounds related trashy. to like <laughs> related to flashy. Uh, <laughs> as far as the concepts go, and, and really just generally as far as your own work goes, a, a promotion. What? How do you measure the feedback? How do you know when you're doing a good job? When you have a hit or when you have a miss? Uh, I think some, you know, with you know, the flashy trashy, you get an audible response from, from the fans. And so, you know, 
you know, that that is successful. There's some features that are more just informational. Um, we have a current one that just kind of has the players talking about their call up to major leagues and, you know, where they were at when they got that call, what emotion was going on, how did that first game go? So it's not a, a feature that would necessarily elicit an audible response, but it's just in general, it's a, it's a way to, to kind of humanize the player. You know, these people know them as just athletes, what their stats are, but, you know, we try to find ways to, to bring out their personality to tell a little bit of their, their story. So again, some are audible, some are, some are not, some, you know, we just might at the end of the year feel, hey, you know, we don't think we quite hit one out of the park with this one. So, you know, just different variables to, to determine if it's successful or not. Mm-hmm. So uh, during the, the very recently, the Mariners had one of their players eligible for the final vote. That's Gene Segura. And so the uh, the Scent Segura campaign was launched. It was very successful. I was surprised that he actually got outvoted by 50% by Jesus Aguilar. But I guess that's mm-hmm. the different league. So I don't know what the Brewers Believe in doing. Jesus. Believe. <laughs> the power of Jesus. Is that what the marketing campaign was? It was. The, 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 the Brewers did a great job in the We Believe in Jesus. They got local churches involved, and it was it was very creative. They did awesome work. Wow, and, to learn. And, and I, know, I know the Brewers fans are also big Gene Segura fans, so I think they helped us as well. So as far as the, uh, the hashtag Send Segura campaign goes, you, you don't get a whole lot of notice, presumably, that he's going to be one of the, the players on the final vote. I don't know what kind of... Uh, numbers you get through it all but you know it went so far as to have like an hour and a half fan voting fest at the field on the infield on uh, on wednesday afternoon to get people supporting cigar how does something like that come together and in in such a hurry and i mean are there at that point even any limits because at least based on the social media blitz pretty much every single person was involved and it all came together really fast yeah it's uh it's crazy and fun and exhausting and you know Credit goes to our fans and our players for, for getting involved really quickly. You know, we, we knew when the first uh, final vote announcement was going to be on Sunday. And then uh, we knew that uh, we were going to get a call if we had a candidate uh, Sunday morning. I got that call at like 730 in the morning after <laughs> after a, a wedding the previous night, and a, a late night the previous night. And uh, I... I remember jotting down who the final vote candidates were. And uh, the woman who was sharing the, the news with me was like, you know, Gene's in, you know, he's going up against Eddie Rosario and Andrew Benatendi. I'm like, uh, and Andrew Simmons from LA. It's another big market. And she ended with uh, Giancarlo Stanton. And I'm like, oh God. <laughs> um, so we had some ideas of things we wanted to do if we had had a candidate. And then we, we met here at Safeco Field, uh, 10 in the morning on Sunday morning and discussed specific ideas around Gene, set up the hashtag, uh, got to work on a t-shirt and a campaign slogan. We called the Giants. We have some friends at the Giants. We called them almost immediately, probably around eight in the morning and uh, set up uh, uh, an alliance with them. And we heard from the Brewers at like nine in the morning, like trying to set up an alliance and I kind of felt bad that we'd already set ours up. And, uh, but, uh, then from there it was just a sprint to do as much as we can. And, uh, you know, everybody contributing ideas and, you know, from front office members to players, to fans and trying to execute and do as much as you can in that, uh, time window that the final vote is going on and, you know, giving 
Colin O'Keefe as much coffee and Red Bull as his little system can stand so he can sit, stay up at all hours to, uh, you know, to engage with our fans and social media. But it, it was a lot of fun. And that the, the Segura Fest that we did uh, uh, on on the last day and the last hour came about the, the night before of, you know, what's the what's one more thing we can do? We need to do one more thing. And Camden Finney, who works in our uh, office and who was uh, kind of a de facto campaign manager was texting me late into the night like we need to do one more thing we need one more thing and I was like okay you know, we, we, we got, I got to get a lot of people's approval and she just kept texting back saying okay I got this person on board and I got this person on board and she texted Mandy probably at like 11 o'clock at night saying okay you know, we need your help first thing in the morning putting this all together and uh, we didn't announce that in the market until you know 9 30 it went on on air and on 7 10 and uh, I think Colin posted it at about 9 45 in the morning and you know, we had 600 fans show up uh, to, to to vote for Gene. So it's a, a credit to our, our amazing fan base and, you know, a really, really great player to vote for. So in our Facebook group, I often see our listeners posting pictures of the scoreboard in their respective ballparks. And they will pinpoint when a team is adding some advanced stat to its display. So they'll say, oh, look, War is on the scoreboard or Woba is on the scoreboard or whatever the stat is. And I'm always interested in the decisions that teams make in that area because people in the ballpark, that is a captive audience. And those people don't always go and look up those stats. This could be their first point of contact with some of those statistics because in many cases, you still have to really look for those things. They don't really just jump out at you unless they are on the scoreboard at your ballpark. So what has your philosophy been as far as presenting that information and you know, giving people value, but also not cluttering the screen too much and then also not bombarding them with things that they don't understand what kind of balance have you struck there you know you go to a ball game and you you're going to be sitting next to somebody it's going to be their first baseball game they've attended Mm -hmm. and whether that's somebody that's young it might be somebody that's old and you're going to be sitting next to uh you know that somebody that's a season ticket holder that's been going for 20, 30 years and you know may have a, a really great understanding of uh, of stats and advanced sabermetrics, and it, it's 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 striking that balance. And over time, as we moved over to Safeco Field, we had you know more scoreboard real estate to share more information with our fans. So you know we get to display first pitch strikes and display you know batter versus pitcher information on every pitch, and you know display you know uh, lots of other diff- different information, but. We're, we're constantly looking to add more to where we can, you know, with, with the space we can without taking away from the game or, or you know, cluttering the scoreboard. But, uh, you know, I know we're, we're looking at some, some additional stats uh, for, for maybe this year or the coming years as well. So, Greg, you've been around with the Mariners for two decades. Mandy, you've been around for, for one. And, you know, going back 10 years, 20 years, teams were – teams – at least online identities, if they even had one, were less accessible than they are today. So when it comes to promotions or video content or just ways that you want to see the team marketed or even going as far as like the, the team commercials, how much of how much of your work now is sort of almost like crowdsourced versus where it used to be, which is to say, I guess, how receptive are you to people who don't work for the team, of course, who are fans who maybe have ideas of things that, that you could do and and then are you able to turn any of those around? Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think social media is 
it's such an amazing opportunity to make a, a direct connection with the fans and you know we we've always made it a priority to you know not only share information about the team and content and vote segura but also listen in in the social space so you know we monitor mariners and safeco field and different promotions that we do and uh you know we're listening for that feedback uh from fans about you know what they what they liked what they didn't like what ideas that they have uh for us and we're constantly looking for ways to you know recognize you know fans when they do share a great idea or if they're just you know kind of celebrating Mariners baseball in the social space but for us it, it's really important for it to be a, a two-way conversation and not just to be broadcast 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 this is us you know I, I always compare it to going to a party and it's that person that kind of saddles up to you and just continues to talk about themselves social media accounts that do that are are uninteresting you have to listen and you know hear what your fans like and you know what they're into and what they're talking about and uh Colin and Nathan and Jose do an amazing job of of listening not only to our fans but to you know everything that's happening in the in the social space and um you know trying to relate it back to Mariners baseball or um you know, celebrate what fans are doing there. So you recently hosted Turnerhead the Clock Night, and this was the 20th anniversary of the original event. So, Greg, I guess you were there when that happened. <laughs> yeah, I was a rookie. Yeah. <laughs> it's my rookie season. <laughs> okay. So did anything from the original event end up becoming part of baseball that you can recall? Was there anything that was prescient? Or when you were planning this time around, was there anything that got left on the cutting room floor that you were thinking of incorporating into this that didn't make it or just any favorite things that did? Yeah, I mean, th- this is such a unique and special event for, for Mariners baseball that we, we've been, you know, Kevin Martinez, who, who, who launched the, the first event and, um, you know, who worked with Griffey on the first event, has been talking about doing this for, for years and, you know, the 20th anniversary of it gave us an opportunity to do it again. So, you know, we started with that event in uh, 98 as our kind of foundation and, and we reviewed those scripts and, you know, we're kind of porters here. We saved everything and we had, uh, <laughs> we had the original scripts, we had photos and we wanted to, you know, kind of have a little bit of a nostalgia for the future, if you will. I don't know if that's even a thing. <laughs> um, so, you know, bringing back the uniforms and some of the other elements, the, the DeLorean, but then trying to, trying to do some, you know, new and different elements, you know, these turn ahead, turn back the clock nights are really fun for, for our group to put together. You know, we start working on them in months in advance and brainstorming, you know, hundreds of different ideas of how we can, you know, make it special for our, our, our fans. And, you know, if you, you come to the, the ballpark on that night, it should feel like a really, unique different game and and there's there's lots of different takeaways uh i'm trying to think of my favorite moment from from this past turn at the clock night again i think it was like two weeks ago and it feels like it was two months ago because we've already had like 10 (laughs) games between now and then but God, what was there were so many great things in there i'll come up with them do you have anything on turn ahead I think it was just the the visuals, you know, that was one thing that, you know, the kingdom, the nice, I mean, I wasn't there for it, but, you know, it was this dome where you could have lasers and kind of shape the atmosphere that way, you know, here with the open ballpark, don't have that opportunity, but we have all of these ribbon boards and, you know, a giant Mariner's vision board that can help kind of bring the event to life. So I think just 
a lot of kind of like the graphics package that we brought, um, just how dynamic some of the, the features would could be, you know, our hydro races became, you know, this outer space DeLorean challenge. So I think a lot of that just visuals kind of really brought the event to life. You asked about what what didn't make it and a uh, favorite. I, I've got two. Mm-hmm. So my thing that didn't make it uh, was like the only thing that I worked on. <laughs> I remember like, like we, we did a brainstorm similarly back in 98 where we went to Sneakers, a local sports bar on Occidental right by the Kingdom. And we did this like, you know, two hour brainstorm session for the event in 98 and came up with a list of 200 different ideas. And I was, again, the rookie at the time. And there was like one idea assigned to me, which was go find a robot to deliver the baseball for the first pitch. So I went and met with the University of Washington Engineering Department. I was like gung-ho about nailing this. I, you know, met with them a couple times, drove back and forth to UW, came back with photographs of the robot, sat down with my my boss, Kevin Martinez, at the time and said, okay, I got a robot. Here's the picture of it. And he looked at the picture and he's like, huh, kind of looks like a garbage can. <laughs> and, I was, and I was just like destroyed. And I could, I think he could read on my face, like, like how, like like crushed I was by this. So he's like, eh, you know, what? it's all right. We'll call him Mr. Scraps and we'll roll him out there. <laughs> so Mr. Scraps didn't make it back, which is good because uh, like for five or six years after that event, if you Google imaged my name, Mr. Scraps image was the first thing that came up. <laughs> um, and then my favorite thing that we added to this year's event was we got to predict that we did a feature in between innings where we, you know, did headlines from 2027 in, in Seattle, Macklemore elected mayor and, you know, Sonics win their eighth straight championship. But my personal favorite was that we got to announce that the hockey team won their, their first Stanley Cup. And because the, the hockey team doesn't have a name out here, we got to name the hockey team. So I think that since we did that, they have to be forever known as the Seattle Yeti. That's going to be the name of the team. <laughs> Relate, I guess related to... I think to- brown furry like sweaters to wear, that would work, right? You know, they, <laughs> Nobody else is doing it. They kind of would look like Chewbacca out there, perhaps. Yeah, right. Be fringy out there. It yeah. gives you a little more padding. You're warmer. I guess exactly. related to the uh, the coming inevitability of, of a hockey team and probably not too far after that, a basketball team, maybe the order is mixed up. I know we you'll see on social media, you know, the whole city's united and the teams all get along with, with one another. The Sounders and Seahawks were, were supporting Gene Segura and his all-star campaign. But there has to be at some level, maybe, maybe you try not to think about this too much, but there is a little bit of a, a competition for disposable income. So how do you sort of balance the uh, the rivalry against other area products with the fact that this is really just the same city pulling for for sports teams and and you all want to be on on the same page you know i'll, I'll tell you you know the real competition today you know, we're not playing here today at safeco field but you know it's sunny and 75 in seattle today and you know if you're sitting at home trying to decide what to do tonight you know, you can go to Alki, you can go have dinner somewhere, you can go for a hike. You know, there are, you know, hundreds of things to do in and around the city. And that's our competition. Uh, we we have to make, you know, Safeco feel something that you want to do on a summer night in Seattle. We have to make it a part of your, your summer. So for us, that's what the competition is. And, you know, the other thing I'll say is, you know, you, you look at something like the arts community and, you know, the... 
Pacific Northwest Ballet is not looking at the Seattle Symphony and going, you know, we just we got to crush them on uh, on ticket sales. We that's who we got to beat. You know, the the arts community. You know, they work together and they they care about each other and uh, they they support one another. And it's it's the same thing in the sports community. We're you know we're fans of the Hawks and the Storm, um, the Sounders, the Huskies, Cougars, and we 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 try to you know support one another. We the Seahawks have had our players out for flag raising ceremonies. We have their guys out for first pitches. We were all in during their Super Bowl run, and um, you know they've, like you said, been uh, great supporters of us and our, yeah, our most recent Sensegura uh, campaign. Well, I don't live in Seattle, so you're not going to get that much of my business, unfortunately, although I <laughs> have been to Safeco and enjoyed it. But I would Good. just say that if I were in the city, I would probably buy tickets just to watch the roof open and close. So <laughs> I would recommend, regardless of the cool, weather, right? yeah, just, I mean, I would just sit there and have it be sliding in and out all game long, whether it's raining or not. That to me would be about as big <laughs> an attraction as the baseball itself, because that roof is really cool. It is really cool. Like, people ask like you know how much can you open it how long does it take to open and i always say you know it can open once and then it once it closes during a game the the rule is it can't open again and we always say it's because the roof is not a toy to play with and make it go open and close but yeah it's 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 a pretty cool feature so the last thing i wanted to ask uh for for this is the the mariners made their mark i think as far as the market is marketing is concerned is the I think the the first team, at least the first team, to my knowledge, to have good and, and clever commercials. And, you know, that's been going on for decades now. People always look forward to the Mariners team commercials. Other teams have launched their own clever commercials. I don't know who came first. It doesn't really matter. But as far as filming team commercials goes, and also just as far as video content for the board or promotions for the team in general, you might have noticed the Mariners have a general manager who's constantly churning over the roster. This has <laughs> crossed your mind. And even before that, when the Mariners were worse... They were just churning through players because they weren't very good. So how much more challenging is it to try to promote a team in advance when you really don't have a great idea who's still going to be on the roster at any given week? You know, you you have a, a usually a core group of players that you know going into a season that you're going to have an opportunity to promote and celebrate and you know, th- there's always opportunities, uh, you know, whether it be through the commercials that usually last the entire season or, you know, now with social media to, to highlight guys and, you know, help build the bond between players and fans and educate them on who they are, what their personalities are, what their likes and dislikes are. So I, I think in, in winning seasons and, and in losing seasons, there's there's you know, opportunities to do that. And, and Jerry is certainly a, you know, great fodder for uh, potential future commercials. We've talked to yeah. some ideas of, of how to highlight his uh, uncanny abilities to, to make almost <laughs> daily deals. Um, Nathan, uh, Nathan had a great idea in our social media department for a, a, a Christmas video where, you know, it's, it's uh, Jerry and his staff, you know, the baseball staff getting together for one of those white elephant gift exchanges and you you start it out and then it gets to jerry and then he makes another deal for another item and then you do one of those little like clock fast forward like five hours and a few people have peeled off and he's still making deals and then you fast forward the clock another six hours and it's just jerry with all the gifts 
Well, according to the decibel meter that I keep next to my computer, the po- this podcast has finally gotten loud enough, enough. So I think we can close it down. But Greg and Mandy, I'd like to thank you very much for your time on this otherwise beautiful sunny Seattle afternoon. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining and, and explaining as much as you could. Thanks for the opportunity. Go Mariners. Thank you. All right. I'll be right back to wrap up with some updates on things that we talked about earlier and some other stuff, too. So show us why we came here. Go lay on the ground. Give it to us loud and clear. Make the devil turn around. The world around is turning. I'm just standing Well, shortly after we got off the line with Mandy and Greg, James Paxton left his start on Friday after only 17 pitches with lower back stiffness. So make some noise. Hopefully he's okay. But if he isn't, it makes that wildcard race more interesting, which Jeff and I were just talking about earlier this week. If Paxton were hurt, maybe Billy Bean would be a buyer again. We shall see. So one thing that Jeff and I had planned to ask Greg and Mandy, but neglected to, was about fun facts on the video board, how they generate them, what the goal is, what qualifies as one. We might still email and ask, but we actually got an email from listener Andrew, who is one of the video board operators for the Giants at at and Park. So I asked him about the video board fun fact process. He said, as far as fun facts, we don't do many of those at the Giants, unfortunately. We ran a few at the beginning of the year that were provided by an intern, just generic stuff like has won three goals gloves for Brandon Crawford or something. That was spearheaded by the Giants' digital and social media department. Our stats person who runs the scoreboard is also religious about going through the press notes each day and marking down, among other things, career milestones, hitting streaks, etc. A different operator builds those graphics to keep handy for later in the game. There is a Derek Holland first career home run graphic still collecting dust somewhere in our system, for example. There was a running Kelby Tomlinson fun fact gag earlier in the year that the Padres and Angels had about how he, quote, wears glasses despite having perfect 2020 vision that I wanted to respond to, but I could never quite figure out how. We don't run goofy visiting team facts, although I would like to. We did it when I worked for the Rivercats, and I would play goofy walk-up music for the visiting team, but the Giants are a lot more muted when it comes to stuff like that. Anyway, just goes to show that there is an effectively wild listener who does every job in the world, so if your job is generating fun facts for a stadium scoreboard, let us know. Alright, I promised you updates, and updates you shall have. So I mentioned listener Nick earlier in the episode, the architect who had emailed us. Well, he followed up. He says he's finally had time to research the stadium. This is difficult since most of the articles I've found are focused on things like baseball and finances and collecting Twitter reactions that occasionally feature good jokes about how there are too many people in the stadium in those renderings. But he says he finally found one that talks about the architecture briefly and gives a little more insight into the giant glass dome. This is from the Bradenton Herald. And Nick says, I bolded the key point here. Even though it's a glass roof, that glass is photovoltaic. PV glass is basically clear solar panels, so they will absorb solar energy to power the building while providing insulation from the outdoor air temperature and reducing the heat gain you would normally get from the light. That shading is why real grass wouldn't be able to grow. There's just no way plants will get enough light to live. I haven't seen any specific PV glass products listed for the stadium, but the product link below seems relatively popular, or at least has great search engine optimization, and he links me to amorphous silicon photovoltaic glass. He says, I haven't found any pricing for it, but I'm guessing 
guessing it wouldn't be cheap even in smaller scale uses. The renderings make it clear that the stadium would have huge panels, so it's not hard to see why the roof alone is expected to cost a quarter of a billion dollars. And honestly, it's likely to cost way more than their estimate. That's an honest architect. In short, not only will the glass dome not fry fans like ants under a magnifying glass, but it should provide reasonable comfort and energy savings. I'm sure the taxpayers will feel great about that. So that's good news. Thank you very much, Nick. Rafael Vignoli should look into photovoltaic glass for his next project. However, there exists another objection to the Rays' proposed stadium. This comes to us courtesy of listener Andrew, a different Andrew. Andrew is an architectural engineer. He has visited 32 major league stadiums, and he has worked on a variety of stadiums around the world, including some baseball stadiums. He opines that in more general terms, quote, I feel like the new Rays' stadium is a huge whiff. I've worked on feasibility studies for other baseball stadiums, and the overarching objectives, especially with roof stadiums, are that they feel like a regular baseball stadium when the roof is open. Bright blue skies, views to neighboring buildings, think PNC or AT&T. Objectives for the roof are that it doesn't obstruct the above field view or the field of play when closed, and you can't see it when it's open. The best example of this is, what do you know, Safeco in Seattle, where the roof completely retracts over the rear of the stadium when not in use. Although, again, I much prefer when it is in use. Andrew continues, What the Rays are proposing is a fixed roof with operable wall panels that achieve neither of those criteria for about the same price as Safeco, although that was 15 years ago. I can very quickly see this stadium being rejected by the baseball viewing public as basically another trap. Now here's something we hadn't considered. In addition to providing protection from the weather for baseball, roofs at stadiums provide what planners call weather certainty, meaning they can schedule high-value concerts with a reassurance that they won't be rained out. While this stadium appears to partially cover that, I'm still not sure they've created a space where concerts would be ideal. The large amount of glass will create a poor acoustic environment, like why the Marlins Park feels like a swimming pool. Good point, Andrew. It may not burn you, but it may be a bad place to hear Pearl Jam. Andrew also includes a stat blast in his email about the argument that the stadium needs a roof because it rains in the afternoons in Florida in the summer. Andrew says, I analyzed five years of historic rain data in Tampa and found that an evening game starting at 7 p.m. had less than a 1% chance of raining during the expected playtime. Speaking with people in Tampa, it seems the population has a disposition to staying dry and that if they even think it might rain, they might not make a trip to the ballpark, hence the perceived need for a roof. Not sure how this has improved attendance in Miami. Kind of guess not a whole heck of a lot, although that may have more to do with the Marlins than the rain. So thank you, Andrew, and all our other architectural engineers. Another follow-up, after Jeff and I talked about the Jordan Hicks and Bud Norris article, Jordan Hicks actually tweeted in response to it. So Keenan Middleton of the Angels quote-tweeted Mark Saxon, the author of that article, and said, After being under his wing last year, I can promise you he's only looking out for Jordan Hicks. Bud is a big lead-by-example guy. Once I learned that, our relationship changed forever. 100 emoji. And Jordan Hicks says, I couldn't agree more. Crazy what the media will do when they think there is a story. Facepalm emoji. Solid vet. Checkmark emoji. So make of that what you will. Jordan Hicks seems to be tweeting that all is well with him and Bud Norris. I don't know why he didn't say that when he was asked for a quote for the article. Maybe he was just busy. Maybe Mark Saxon made more of it than it was. Maybe Jordan Hicks just doesn't want to say so publicly. Maybe he doesn't want to be badgered by Bud Norris even more. Also, just as I was about to post this, Derek Gold put an article up about this issue. He has quotes from Hicks. Hicks says, Norris has the best intentions for me, but is not bad at all. He's getting on me because he wants me to be a better player, and I know it's to make me a better teammate. Evidently, there was a battle between Norris and Hicks about the volume of the music in the 
Clubhouse. Hicks was turning it up. Norris was turning it down. So I'll link to that follow-up article in case you're interested in the details. Another follow-up from J.P. Hornstra, who covers the Angels and the Dodgers, also an Effectively Wild listener. Earlier this week, Jeff and I talked about Mike Trout's love of fishing and crabbing. Well, J.P. has written about Mike Trout's love of hunting, so more members of the animal kingdom have reason to fear Mike Trout. Mike Trout is evidently an accomplished bow hunter. He told J.P. that he got his start around age 10 shooting deer, duck, rabbit, and pheasant in his home state. Now, this is a story from 2013. Angels prospect Caleb Cowart is also a bow hunter. He mounts his game and keeps them in a trophy room of sorts at his parents' house in Georgia. Trout does not. I don't shoot anything I don't eat, he said. So, Mike Trout, bow hunter, carnivore, but not into trophies. Kind of fits with what we know about Mike Trout. And although it may not sound this way, bow hunting may actually be safer than crabbing. Listener Chase sent us a link to an article just from this week about a man who contracted a life-threatening flesh-eating bacteria while crabbing in New Jersey. We hope he's okay. We hope this never happens to Mike Trout. Please do not email us questions about how valuable Mike Trout would be with a flesh-eating bacteria. And also, thanks to the many of you who tweeted at me, To offer your condolences, yes, Williams Estadio struck out on Thursday, swinging, no less, against Blake Snell, who, if you didn't think he should be an all-star already, now he struck out Williams Estadio swinging. Definitely an all-star. That was actually Astadio's first strikeout since June 11th in AAA, so he had gone more than a month between strikeouts. Granted, he wasn't playing every day, but never mind that. And our condolences and best wishes to Garrett Richards, who will be having Tommy John surgery. I know it probably seems as if Garrett Richards has already had two Tommy John surgeries, but this will actually be his first one. He had a torn ACL, he tore his UCL, but got stem cell injections and tried to pitch through it. Then he had nerve irritation in his biceps, but he's only 30, so we do hope that we get to see healthy, good Garrett Richards again. And while I'm on the subject of the Angels, to bring things full circle, Albert Pujols on Thursday tied Ken Griffey Jr. with his 630th career home run, and it came against the Mariners. All right, so that will do it for today and also for this week. You can support this podcast and ensure that there will be many more weeks to come by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. You can sign up there, pledge some small monthly amount, keep the podcast going. The following five listeners have already done so. Stephen Bacala, Sean Cusack, AJ Schreier, Andy Carl, and Brett O'Neill. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Your reviews and ratings do help, or so our iTunes overlords assure us. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. We hope that you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back to talk to you again early next week. Push it down deep inside me I've 